This episode contains content around gunfire and combat. Please be advised when listening. You can take me out of the military, but you can't take the military out of me. If I could have stayed young and strong for a thousand years, I'd have spent it as a soldier. How would you spend it as a soldier? Uh, that's... <laughs> I'm going to quote a, mo- a movie, okay? <laughs> it's the best damn job I ever had. <laughs> the term post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, was coined and gained spotlight in the 1970s when countless Vietnam veterans returned home and began experiencing a host of psychological problems. Before that, in medical literature, it was described as shell-shocked, but it wasn't recognized as a disorder until the 80s. The American Psychiatric Association, APA, creates this handbook, the DSM, known as Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which helps guide healthcare providers And after drawing on research involving people who have survived severely traumatic events, including war veterans, Holocaust survivors, and sexual trauma victims, the APA included post-traumatic stress disorder in the DSM-2. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, today about 7.7 million American adults have PTSD. And roughly 500,000 US troops who has served in these wars over the past 13 years have been diagnosed with PTSD. This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Salam Fatayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee. Stories that stick with you. I started this journey speaking to a dear friend, Andrea. We were both talking about therapy, a topic that we frequently discuss. We constantly check in on each other. And during this conversation, she brought up her dad, a veteran who served in the 80s. She mentioned how their relationship has changed over time. And now that she is taking care of her mental health, she hoped that it would inspire him. Later, when I was brainstorming story ideas for upcoming episodes, that conversation kept crawling up and lurking around. What are veterans doing to take care of themselves? Now, I've spoken to Andrea's dad, Carl Ruffier, many times. It's always been pleasant and he has a big personality. I'm going to mention this one thing that will make sense shortly within the episode is that Carl is really into guns. And there was a time he tried persuading me into buying a gun from him, which ended with me nervously giggling and not knowing how to politely say no that Andrea had to interfere with the conversation and redirect it but we've only talked about his experience in the military on a surface level. And I was eager to learn more. And when Carl speaks, he can go on long tangents. So I had an inkling that he would be a great storyteller for this, but I was wrong. As soon as I put on my over the ear headphones and turned on my Zoom recorder, Carl's energy shifted entirely. We were sitting at his kitchen table. He just finished his dinner started fidgeting with his fingers, and then he crossed his arms. Carl was nervous. What year did you serve? How old, so you were 18 years old, what year was that? I went in in 1981, April, 1981. And Andrea said that you were there for about, you were um, serving for about 10 years, is that correct? Correct, I got out September, 1991. I was overhearing, you were saying that you didn't even know what other jobs were like. So you came from a farm. 
how was that experience like transitioning from normal civilian life? So how did how did I do? How was it the experience from going from a civilian yeah, to a soldier? Old. It was a culture shock. Uh, a culture shock from going from civilian life to military life, but they handle all that in basic training. What was the first time being deployed like? It was easy to me. It was easy. How so? I was on harder field problems than an actual war. A lot of things that we trained for, the way we trained, we trained harder than actual war. Instance, when we trained at night, we used blackout drive. Blackout drive means that there's just, you know, like when we're following somebody in a formation, the taillights, they, they're called cat eyes, mm -hmm. just little cat eyes. That's all there is to, you know, to follow them, to know where you're going. Everything else is blacked out. No headlights, no nothing, just complete darkness. And when we started across the border from Saudi Arabia into Iraq, I looked behind me and I felt like we were in Cleveland traffic because all the headlights were on, you know, and it was just a long thing of headlights. And I'm like, we, we trained all those years, you know, for this day and we don't even use those things that we learned, you know, in practice. Was it easy to acclimate back into society, coming back to Ohio? I have never acclimated to society at that point, mm -hmm. okay? So the, what, what I experienced when I came back, I felt like we were on Mars, and then when we got back, everything was green. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh my God, this is great. You know, everything is green again, you know, alive. But being there, everything was dead. It literally looked like Mars, you know. There's not big sand dunes everywhere. There's lots of places where there's just miles. And, and over there, you can see as far as your eyes will let you see. You know, we have a certain, you know, distance that we can see. And you could see that distance over there. Because there was nothing obscuring your vision. It was just flat forever. Big rocks, little rocks junk like that. Was it easy to talk to your peers about what you saw overseas? My peers were with me. We went as a unit. So everybody goes. So we all we all experienced this, the same thing. When I got when I got back, you know, there was a lot of cheers and stuff like that in the bus. What I've noticed about family members and people I've met in general back then they didn't thank you for your service you know it's my family didn't thank me for my service trisha's family you know didn't thank me for my service they sort of i don't know i felt like that i they were condescending you know in a lot of ways because everybody thinks that you know that soldiers it's easy to be a soldier and it's not you have to be intelligent, and you have to be physically fit. And like I said, every day is a test. There's some kind of test every day to ensure that you're good enough to be there. There's tests 
constantly physical tests mental tests you know equipment tests you know you, how well you shoot your rifle things like that and if you don't shoot your rifle well you go home they send you back well, they called it putting you back on the block do you feel like you've um accepted everything from the military any experiences i know there's a lot of talk to that there's not that resources for veterans or mental health issues that things are not talked about do you, is that something that you deal with still now well i wanted to see <laughs> mental health you know you know at in canton for the u.s army you know the veterans administration and the guy i talked to seemed like he was worse than me <laughs> So I never went back. <laughs> you had a real problem. You had a real anger issue. It's as hard to talk to someone that you feel not safe and trusted from. Yeah. How do you then? How do you take care of yourself for any times that you feel like you're in that in a headspace? I don't have those. You don't. Okay. At this point, Andrea cuts into the conversation to assist her father. I think a big thing, actually, if you don't mind me interrupting, yeah, yeah. you, that might be helpful for you is. How do you think the military changed you personality-wise? Because before you went in, you said you were more of like a hippie, a peace like dude, like very chill. And then you had a sergeant that okay. turned you, for lack of a better words, into an a-hole. No, when I first went in the military, I will I really didn't like guns that well, especially theirs, and uh, I didn't believe in killing anybody, and. After I left, I knew I could kill somebody because every day it was pounded in our head. You know, kill, kill, kill. So what does that mean to you, knowing that you can kill someone? I don't like the. I wouldn't. I don't like the idea of having to kill somebody. But they they programmed me to accept the fact that I might have to kill somebody. And you know, I'm. I don't think we all start out as. Killers, you know, when we start in the military, were developed into. I happened to be in what they call support elements. I was a supply sergeant. So my job wasn't to seek out the enemy and kill them. Those, that was combat arms that does that stuff. It was my job to supply them with the things that they need to search for the enemy and kill them, okay? We were trained good enough in case we get attacked that we might be able to survive until, you know, those combat armed people show up. Do you feel like you have to now be on alert all the time? It made me more situational aware. We had a saying, it's called stay alert, stay alive. I always felt, and sometimes I still feel that way that somebody's trying to get me. I always feel like, I don't know if you ever feel that way. Sometimes, yeah. But constantly, I always felt like somebody's trying, you know, at work, you know, everywhere. Just somebody's waiting to get me, you know. And I don't know if that emanated from the military because, well, you know, somebody is trying to get us sometimes. What would you want people to know about veterans or about your experience? that you might not think people understand? Well, I think there's, I think there's a lot of things and I don't think they could ever understand. And you have to be in that situation to understand. I think it's 
big one you always talk about is that you told me is when you when you came back, like what did it feel oh. like for, for you coming back from what you considered to be a brotherhood to this society that oh, was yeah. so just dysfunctional and no one had each other's back and you felt so lost because they didn't You feel you. alone. Where in the military you never feel alone. You never for that's a fact. You never have any privacy to begin with there. Here you have lots of privacy. People leave you alone, you know, on purpose. And there's nobody to turn to. If you have a question, you know, who do you turn to? You know, there, it might have been somebody that was a higher rank than me or somebody that had been, you know, in longer and you know they could explain help explain things you know we we covered each other you know constantly and then vice versa when you yeah. came back how was that then instead of like having someone always there lost lost yeah, yeah. what do i do where do i go where do you find things you know we had we had <laughs> we had it's called an sop um Standard operating procedures for everything. You just look it up, you know, and it tells you what to do. Yeah. We don't have SOPs out here. Oh, I wish there was a rule book or a guideline for how to like, perfect your life. It was safe to say that Carl still had his guard up, and I don't fault him. It's difficult to talk about experience that's not universal, and to ask someone to talk about their time in active duty and the trauma. That reason to be closed off can be multifolded. But what if there was a space crafted specifically for veterans to open up and learn how to take care of their mental health? What would that look like? And what does that have to do with golf? And most importantly, how can someone heal their body and mind from trauma? Do you want to know the secret behind the programming you love? It's all funded by the honor system. As a public radio station, we're based on a very simple model. We try to do something meaningful, connecting with you through music and stories. And then we count on those who appreciate what we do to show their support. Are you one of them? Show your support by visiting RadioMilwaukee.org and joining today. Many veterans struggle to have conversations about the veteran military experience. <laughs> <laughs> you guys sleep okay last night? It's difficult to relate to people who don't know or understand what military personnel have experienced. Matthew McDonald is trying to change that with Next 18. To see what Next 18 is all about, I got in the car, played my favorite music for the long ride from Milwaukee, and headed over to Aaron Hills Golf Course in Hartford, Wisconsin, to observe a four-day golf camp for veterans with disabilities and first responders where Next 18 would provide mental health and holistic lifestyle resource training, all while golfing. The first question I asked Matt was, how did this all start and why golf? To answer that question, Matt, who served in the US Army from 2011 to 2015, opened up candidly about his own battles. I thought I was doing everything right. Now, I couldn't wrap my head around how vets ran into problems. I was getting my MBA. I was doing everything right. I was also on Ambien. And then right when I got out, the VA put me on diazepam. And I took both of those for about four years. They basically numb you, turn you into, like, a shell of who you are. Um, a lot of it is meant to repress 
stuff that we've gone through. Um, but when you do that, you don't really address your problems. Yeah, just bury it deep. And a lot of us, pretty much everyone in this group, uh, as they confirmed yesterday, we emotionally numb and we overload our plates and we don't take care of ourselves because we have to take care of everyone else. So when the VA comes to me in 18 and says, these meds, the diazepam, it's worse than opioids. We need, we're, we're making this push to get vets off. I uh, said, okay, what do I have to do? Well, you can take a half a dose of each for two weeks and stop. Mm-hmm. Took almost two years. But in the two weeks coming off cold turkey, I woke up one morning. I had nine employees at the time. My business was growing. I could barely... Um, I couldn't function. I'm gonna. I don't, my mom, she's right here, so we can. Um, she'll have a hard time listening. I woke up that morning. I couldn't get down my stairs. I felt drunk. I didn't drink the night before. I couldn't see straight. Uh, and now, what I've learned is I was going through severe withdrawals. Um, I knew I wasn't good. So I said, "What do I have to do to get through the next ten minutes?" And that was go lock your firearm. And that had never been a a thing Mm -hmm. to go through my mind so when I went to lock it I looked at it way too long as I'm in so much pain right now it's just you know we have a level of pain because of our our injuries and our what the jobs do to us Um, but this was a whole other level so I was fortunate enough to get through the situation Um, I called one of my doctors in Germany who was one of my TBI specialists there and she said I think you're going through withdrawals take one of the pills five minutes later I was back to normal Mm -hmm. But it took almost two years with doctors outside of the VA to incrementally titrate. The whole time I'm going through withdrawals, I'm chemically imbalanced. My marriage fell apart. She didn't, you know, this isn't what she signed up for. Um, I had to sell the business because I had to take care of myself. And then I started going to a couple of programs. Uh, Semper Fi Fund, they're a national organization. a lot of these organizations do recreational therapy where it's this, right? It's let's just get the veteran out and engaged, out of the isolation mindset, get them doing something and give them a new hobby. Right. And I was, I went to a couple. I, I went sailing in Seattle. I went skiing in Aspen. I played golf in Denver. But they weren't giving resources you know it's great cool you get four days to play golf but when you go home what have you learned Mm -hmm. and that's not a knock on any organization Semper Fi has been amazing I just if I'm gonna do something why not add something to it so that when these guys go home uh, they have breathing exercises we've taught them body scanning mindfulness they did last night when they got done golfing they did a 45 minute restorative yoga and 15 minute reiki session to walk by when uh melissa open heart reiki was doing reiki and you could like you can see tears coming down because they're processing stuff right um so that that was the whole concept and we started last year we did two proof of concepts up at fire ridge in grafton and it it's exploded After a chat, Matt rallied together the participants and conducted a breathing exercise. You know, it was a peculiar sight for me. Here we are at the golf course with the bright sun out, birds chirping, and then just right off to the side, a group of men made out of firefighters, police officers, and veterans were just sitting there, learning how to breathe. 
I thought to myself and asked, why was this sort of bizarre? Was it because of the harmful stereotypes we put on masculinity? The idea of boys don't cry. And in that brief second, seeing a group of men all wearing the same next 18 gear, eyes closed in a relaxed sitting position, learning four by four box breathing to distress, seems strange. That's because we hardly ever see men vulnerable, let alone veterans and first responders. We're gonna start with uh, box breathing. So we're gonna do that for a minute or two. In for four, through the nose. Hold for four. Out through the mouth for four. Hold for four. And we're gonna repeat this for a minute or two. Now I'm not a golfer. And if you're a journalist or have interviewed folks at events, you know that a lot of the time is spent observing, being a fly on the wall. And that's when I stumbled across Michael Stephen Orban. He's a Vietnam veteran, and it was such a delight to speak with him. I only spent probably two hours with Mike, and I knew that I would remember our conversation for a lifetime. He was incredibly generous with his time and words. And although he wasn't participating with the retreat and was there to observe, he was a combat veteran and met Matt through his podcast. I was introduced to Matt, and uh, he had this as a concept, Next 18. So we invited him onto our podcast, Stigma Free Vet Zone, to talk about it. And I'm so impressed uh, one year later at how advanced, how, how much uh, progress they've made. It's, the concept immediately struck me as being very, very positive. Matt and I both know as combat veterans who struggled mm-hmm. with si- suicidal thinking and depression and divorce and all these things. The most valuable part behind all this is the, what it's doing for these veterans to improve their health. They talked a little bit about how, like you said, this is all great, that's just, you know, for four days, but what happens when you come home? What helped you when you're at home, you're not at a golf course, you're not with your buddies that were also veterans that you can't really talk to about? What helps you? What helps me the most is getting past the stigma. Uh, of all things that are out there, it's the stigma. I'm a soldier. I have to uphold, uh, you know, my responsibilities as a man and a soldier. I can't let anybody know that I've got any fractures in this whole thing. So I was responding constantly, not to what was inside of me, but to what I thought the world wanted to hear me say. This is what I have to tell me because that's what they're expecting of me. And so that was easy to do because that's the facade. But that facade had no real emotion, had no real connection. Um, intimately, and I don't mean physically intimate, but emotionally intimacy. And yet the stuff that was inside, that's what I drank to death. That's what I tried to hide. That's what I tried to deny and stay in isolation. So families, uh, wives, children, they pick up on this right away. They can see that something's wrong, but they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to respond to it. They don't know how to interact with us. Uh, and it can be very, very fatiguing and actually very, very stra- uh, straining for them. Uh, it can actually cause a lot of mental trauma for them themselves. So getting past that as, as they're doing here and becoming, I think, the very first step for a lot of us was the trust. We have to trust somebody because if we don't feel the trust, we're not talking. We'll sit there forever. So now coming out to an, uh, an, an event like this, veterans are with veterans. They get to share with each other. And veterans will say, you, have, you felt like that? I felt like that? Everybody feels like that. You almost want to start to cry because there was a time when you felt like you were the only one feeling these these kind of reactions. In, in your journey of getting to that point uh, of being self-sufficient and, you know, um, like you said, in the stage of compassion and seeing the world differently, 
what was one thing that really helped you? Uh, running away to Africa. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that. I, I, I was at school in Madison. You know, my dream was you know to work uh, as a an explorer or a scientist or a photographer for National Geographic. Like, as a young boy, I wanted to see Africa. But I, when I came home, my my dream two things got me through through Vietnam as an infantry soldier. One was to get home to see my wife, and the other was to get home. I had the GI Bill for college, which I wouldn't have had uh, w- without that. Um, so uh, when I came home, my marriage almost instantly fell apart. Uh, as we mentioned, there were you can't fall in love with a facade, you know. And and I wasn't allowing anybody to get inside of me because I didn't know it was there. So that the marriage failed. But when I got to Madison, I mean, the greatest one of the greatest universities in the country and the world. Yeah. What an opportunity! And I couldn't focus. I I couldn't get along. I would look at people who had relationships. They were going to football games. They were all really into what they wanted to do. What they wanted to be and all of these things and I was just lost uh, couldn't focus couldn't understand couldn't concentrate couldn't absorb anything so I was near the Capitol and I walked around and I saw this in the window this big beautiful brochure sign that said Peace Corps toughest job you'll ever love and it was on the continent of Africa I walked in and uh, about four months later I was in Africa <laughs> what year was this? Uh, 1976 so what was it in Africa that was like the aha moment that you're here? Was uh, there were two of them. I ended up, I, I did the Peace Corps for two and a half years, then I w- stayed on. I didn't want to come home because it, I knew what was waiting for me, that same emotional and, and the psychological stress. But the two significant things were meeting the pygmies in their home territory, in their jungle. I mean, these were tiny little people with, the, you know, barefoot and all of that. But when they told me, they explained their their jungle they said the jungle provides us food uh, clothes water medicine shelter everything that we need is provided by the by the uh, jungle and they said our only responsibility is to take care of our god the jungle and I, i was staggered by that because i had lost my faith in god but it showed me that i was part of something much larger than Mike Orban because up to that point everything was about me I'm angry I went to war I'm angry at what humans do I'm a- angry at the government I'm angry at, it was all I I I I I and you get so internalized that the world becomes focused on myself um, so when when I saw that I realized not only was I part of something much larger but I had a responsibility to something much larger than myself and not to be leaving this trail of decimation <laughs> wherever I went and the other was meeting uh, Dr. Albert Schweitzer's hospital and met nurses who actually worked with him and knew him and then I read some more of his literature and he said two things that were absolutely critical to my healing one was reverence for life the other was the will to live and well three things uh, and and the sanctity of the soul but when he talked about the will to live I immediately identified probably the largest struggle that I had and that was the guilt I had knowing when we're at war there's one thing you want you want to go home you want more life and you intuitively know that the people that you're taking life from have the same deep desire to go home and have more life but you put yours above that how do you ever get over that that guilt. I'll be honest, it can be incredibly difficult to talk to veterans about their experience in war. If you know someone who has served, you might relate with being afraid that you're going to say the wrong thing, maybe push too hard, worry that starting a conversation will open a Pandora box of memories and cause harm. It's a sensitive topic, but it doesn't have to be forbidden. Just like any conversation around trauma, 
I learned that the best piece of advice is respecting someone's boundary and letting someone tell their own story. I'm your host, Salam Fatayer. Thank you to Nate Imig, our executive producer. Kenny Perez, our audio engineer. Thank you for our marketing team led by Sarah Lar. Graphics on our wonderful logo is made by Aaron Bagada. Our community engagement manager is Maddie Reardon. And Dan Ryder handles our social media accounts. And a big special thank you to our city-loving members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. Tune in next Monday for our next episode.